Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B as in boy, I double Z A double R O. And today I have back in the studio with us my loving and understanding and extremely patient co-host, Deborah Micus. How are you doing today, Deborah? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. So Deborah was on an unofficial leave from the podcast studio for the last two months. I think this is the first time she's come back in here to actually record anything. So how is it? So far, it's good. Yeah, just so the audience knows, we've had quite a bit of bloopers trying to get this thing started since Deborah and I have not been in the studio together in a while and can't really read off each other, so it's been interesting. But today, um, we're doing part two of Oats Overnight with Brian Tate. How are you doing today, Brian? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. And so for the audience, just as a reminder, I mean, Brian, you're basically a professional, or not basically, you actually are a professional poker player turned food entrepreneur. So do you want to just quick talk, tell the audience about your background again and, and tell us how you became a food entrepreneur? Yeah, of course. Uh, I had a 12-year career in poker starting um, in small online games, working all the way up to the largest cash games in Vegas and Los Angeles, where I ultimately lived. And I was looking for a healthy food, a healthy breakfast alternative that was really ready on the go, needed to be convenient. The schedule was kind of all over the place, um, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and the day and looked to make the product better that I was using. I was making a homemade version of overnight oats, uh, started out in the mason jar and quickly realized that didn't travel well. So I looked to add a little more milk, put it in a shaker cup, almost like a protein shake oatmeal mix. And that's when oats overnight began. I developed the first few flavors in my kitchen in Los Angeles. Uh, got a manufacturing facility in Arizona and started the company there. And three years later, here we are. And so, I mean, last time we talked a lot about, you know, developing different type of flavors and stuff like that and what products you guys have. So I just want to refresh the uh, audience's memory and how, one, how they can find you guys on social media, two, what your website is, and then three, the different varieties of products you guys have because you have both a plant-based protein and a, a milk-based protein, I, I believe, as well. Yes. Yep, that's correct. So, yeah, so you can find us on social. Uh, Instagram's at Oats Overnight. Uh, website is OatsOvernight.com and Facebook.com slash Oats Overnight. We're also available on Amazon. We, uh, we did start with the classic flavors, which contain whey protein. We built these flavors from the ground up, uh, starting with the bulk whey and flavor them with freeze-dried fruit powders and maple sugar and all these different great ingredients, maca root, flax, chia hemp. And we recently launched a plant-based line that's dairy-free, vegan-friendly, uses a pea protein, and all of our flavors are non-GMO and gluten-free. And so what are some of those specific flavors? Yeah, the plant-based line that recently launched is blueberry cobbler, peanut butter cookie dough, cacao crunch, and maple pancakes. We recently launched a chai latte flavor that's caffeinated with real black tea. Uh, really delicious. It's like a cup of coffee in the form of tea, uh, along with a you know high protein breakfast that you can eat on the go and is ready when you wake. Our classic flavors are chocolate peanut butter banana, green apple cinnamon, strawberries and cream. We have a caffeinated mocha dream that we make a delicious mocha latte protein powder for, and a peach upside down cake, which is also great. 
And so I know, and Deborah asked me this question before when I was talking about recording this podcast, and I know maybe she asked you before we actually recorded, but I mean, how did you make the decision to go from being a food entrepreneur, I mean, being a poker player, professional poker player, to being a food entrepreneur? I mean, sort of what was the mindset that that took you in that direction? Because it's obviously a huge change. Yeah, it is a big change. Um, There are a lot of uh, crossover skills and things that apply, but it's a much different, different direction, much different lifestyle and different objectives. Um, you know, poker was great. I definitely had a, had a strong 12 year run. Uh, once this, once boats overnight was part of my life and I was making it day to day and really saw how beneficial it was. Um, it was, it was a new passion for me with poker. Again, it was great, great uh, money, uh, great schedule. So I was, Possibly looking for investments and different opportunities um, that I could really get behind uh, as I as I got into my 30s, and this was a pretty apparent option. And started out as a side project, and it quickly became a full time thing. And so from there, I mean, how um, how did you get started? I mean, what was your initial? I mean, what was the launching step? Like, okay, so uh, this is what I want to do. I mean. What was your first step to really, because a lot of people have trouble taking that first step as an entrepreneur, fear takes over and all that. So what was the first step for you that you truly felt like, hey, this is what I need to do to be a food entrepreneur or launch my product? So the very, yeah, the very first step, and I covered this in more detail on the previous episode, but the very first step was building the brand. And at this time, it wasn't really a real career for me. It didn't feel like something I would do long term. But it was fun. And I, you know, engaged a few people in my network who were great with branding and package design. And we built what is now Oats Overnight, uh, both the package format, the flavors. And that really felt, you know, purely like fun. Um, You know, as we got into, you know, how do we bring this to market? How do we sell this? How do we manufacture this in a, you know, compliant way? How do we build the team? That's when the decisions got more difficult. And that's when, things got a little more serious and I began to understand that I couldn't do this in between poker sessions. It had to be a full-time thing. So, you know, in hearing about your product, I mean, I find it, it's just, there's kind of a food revolution going on. And if you look in the grocery store, you're seeing all these brands that are newer to the market. They're smaller companies. There's a lot of really exciting stuff and no doubt your product is falling in line with that. And so, you know, with that, I mean, I feel like it's not just generational. A lot of times when people target a market, a lot of times it's generational or whatnot. But when you think of marketing your product, you know, who's your prime target? I mean, there's definitely a convenience to it and ease and mobility to it. Uh, You know, so is it a lifestyle of a person that you're looking for? Is there potentially an age bracket? Is there like, how do you really try to hone in on who your people are? Yeah, there were a lot of learnings in this area. When we developed this and when I was making it, it was really for my own personal use. And, you know, I'm a, I guess, an average-sized guy, worked out five, six days a week, and really needed something to supplement. You know, sitting at a table for 12 hours a day, I needed a healthy uh, healthy diet, for sure. And breakfast was always difficult for me. I usually would end up getting a Starbucks breakfast sandwich. It was definitely a weak point in my routine. So this served that need, filled that need really well. And so when we set out, I looked almost looked for people like me to sell it to. 
I thought fit focused, uh, you know, working out every day, uh, just fitness enthusiasts in general would be, would, would love it. And again, we found that those are actually our biggest critics. Um, you know, a lot of people have the protein in their cupboard, they have oats, they have seeds, and their perception is that they can make this at home. Now, I'd always encourage them to try the homemade version and compare it to ours because, you know, you can't, you can't beat the streamlined prep, you know, the um, no need to grocery shop and easy cleanup and also the, just the delicious flavors. But, you know, we found that those people were our biggest critics just because the idea that they could make it themselves and the people that truly love the product, uh, much more wide, much more wide of a reach. It's more, you know, people that want to do better, uh, want to be healthier, but don't necessarily know where to start with their diet. And, you know, they needed a little help. We're very educational in, in our emails and, and the way we've kind of adapted to embrace that, you know, that group of people. And don't get me wrong, plenty of athletes love the product. We, you know, sell to college sports programs, football teams, high school teams, kind of you name it, uh, nutrition shops. But really the, you know, the everyday American who, you know, has to wake up at 7 a.m. go to a drive-thru or, or not uh, right. is, is loving it. You know, we're, we're solving that problem. Right. Yeah. You know, I know Justin and I, we travel a lot. And so, I mean, it's definitely a topic, you know, when we're traveling, because we try to, I mean, we're fit and we work out a lot and, but it's always tricky to find that healthy option when you're running through an airport or whatnot. And this seems like a great option because you can just kind of take it with you and you can buy your liquid on the road, you know, because obviously you can't take that into you know, an airport or whatnot. But if you were in a car or, you know, then all that much more, it's even that much easier. So I feel like that that convenience of just being able to take it with you is a great option. And, you know, it's interesting too the learning curve of thinking, oh, yeah, you know, like-minded people, you know, because I, I definitely can see the convenience of it. And, uh, and I'm not as far into, like a lot of people do their macros and they get really far into it that way. I'm, I'm not quite that far you know, into it. So uh, I can see how some of those people, you know, they also are very particular about what they eat and they want to measure everything. So I can see if you really get to that, you know, that really competitive type athlete and stuff, that's, you know, why they might, they like to have all that control. And, uh, but I agree with you. There's definitely some convenience to it all. And so, and I'm sure you guys, I mean, what's gone into, you know, obviously streamlining the process you have to for production's sake. And, uh, but in what have you guys done in terms of like getting your research down into what products you're going to put into it and honing in on your recipes? Yeah, a lot of that comes direct from the consumers themselves. And I think that's a huge benefit of being direct consumer. Uh, our focus is Amazon and our website, OatsOvernight.com. Uh, primarily through Facebook ads, which, again, are very data-rich, and we get to, uh, you know, look at our audiences, look at the demographics, look who's interested, look who's purchasing, and also directly engage with those customers from our website. Uh, lots of interaction day-to-day on social. We ask questions. We're very uh, conversation-forward. And, yeah, everybody everybody always wants to, you know, kind of help out, add their two cents, and we listen to everything. So that's really helped us kind of like everything from releasing new flavors, uh, transitioning to a fully gluten-free product, going non-GMO, all these main things came directly from our consumers, and we prioritize that feedback. Right. You know, so one of the things, because with your product being, it's the same, but it's different, right? Like there's obviously other oatmeals out there, so it's the same in that sense, but it's different in its kind of its application, in the ingredients, whatnot. And so, you know, you talked about data-driven and stuff. How much do you have to do in terms of educating the general public 
so that they know why you're different, why you're better? Like, you know, how do you guys go about all that? Yeah, there's a lot. And I think that that's really where creative comes in. And of course, copy, copy and messaging on the ads. It's really important to dial that creative in. Personally, I like more stylistic ads, uh, almost more like Soylent style, which is, you know, a little techy, interesting, funny sometimes. But we found early on that there was a lot of education was required with this product. And, you know, also to show why we're priced, uh, you know, maybe 10, 20% higher than Quaker or another oatmeal product and of course we have plenty of reasons and our customers see the value in that but it's important that we relay it to them so yeah mostly through messaging uh and digital and just curious do you guys go after like personalities at all to try and like have certain people you know rep your brand and and go out there and promote for you and if so who are you targeting yeah, influencer. We have a, we have a we've been developing the influencer side of our marketing team over the last six months, and it really didn't exist a year ago. We've we've always tried one-off influencer relationships, haven't had a lot of success. Attribution is really difficult, and so we've always just stuck to what we're good at with Facebook ads. But more and more, we've been expanding uh, our spend into influencer marketing, and you know it's 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 important to diversify that. I think uh, we we actually learn a lot. We some people we think won't succeed for us, and they knock it out of the park and it's a new demographic that we you know didn't realize existed before like distance biking or you know, distance running or, or biking um you know so we we, we dabble in everything and we kind of take take and measure that so brian actually this is a you know maybe just a really good topic too just in general for food entrepreneurs and whatnot and with a lot of startups who are involved and listen to our show um would you mind diving in a little bit further in terms of influencers um, how you engage them, you know, kind of even maybe how you work out compensation, you know, is it based on their viewers, the intensity of their viewers? It's, you know, maybe you can dive in a little bit because I know this is definitely a newer trend um, and more and more people are going to this as a form of advertising. And so, you know, what are the things you've learned? What are, you know, the objectives when you're trying to identify a person that you want to bring on as an influencer? What are the things you're looking for? Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of uh, layers to this question. So if you have any, want me to expand on anything, please let me know. Um, but, you know, starting out, it, it was difficult because it's, you have to send products, you have to negotiate a rate. Uh, maybe two years ago, there was a lot of value uh, dealing directly with influencers because, you know, quite honestly, they didn't understand what their reach meant for brands. They didn't understand, you know, that they could make one post and generate $4,000 in revenue. Uh, they didn't know how to price themselves. So there was a shift toward management a lot more. I guess professional influencers are managed now. And so those prices are almost normalized with the return. And a lot of times it's not necessarily in the brand's favor. So it's important to, we, we have two sections of this. We have an organic side of the team where we initiate contact with just any, like micro influencers, anyone with, you know, 2000 to 50,000 followers that we think might be interested in the product, might be a good fit, and we're, we always offer to send a free product for a post. Um, and then the other side of this is the paid side, which we've done both paid deals that our team manages ourselves, but it's difficult to keep that up uh, because there's a lot of research involved. Of course, when dollars are on the line, you need to see performance and ROI. So we've actually been working with agencies that place influencers through data-driven decisions and, and say, you know, try this one, this one's a good fit. This one performed well with company A, B, or C that's in your, you know, similar 
uh, category. And yeah, we go with that. And of course, we track that as well. And there's an approval process for the influencers they present, but it's much more scalable that way, even though we're likely paying, you know, 20% of charge. And so is that basically what then the agency is making that 20% up? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so generally the case. for their services or whatnot. So, they, exactly. I mean, so they definitely have, um, so I'm trying to imagine what that looks like. So they're able to track kind of the person that they're promoting to you, like, hey, this person would be a really great fit for you. And then you're able, they're able to see what they're doing for you. And then you calculate a 20% up for them based on what you're paying the influencer themselves. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't really look at the 20%. No. So the, it's an all, all included price with our current, uh, the current deal that we were working with this current agency. Okay. It's, uh, you know, we get a price. It's $3,000 for this person to post. It's a story post, this many slides. And, you know, we, we either accept that, that deal or we reject it. And then we have content approvals as well. And what does, what this does is it allows us to, you know, handle 50 plus posts a month or, or more, uh, without real direct oversight. And, um, you know, less contracts because we have one contract with the agency. We're not dealing with, you know, uh, influencers a la carte. And also the, that oversight is, is in part absorbed by the agency. We don't have to, you know, we're not fully responsible for following up and making them post timely. That relationship's managed. Oh, that's a nice feature. Because, so yeah, I could see how it could very quickly yeah. become an ominous task if you had all these different people. So when, sure. so when you're <laughs> yeah. paying that, like, are you, um, so they might, so they're not just giving you one person. They might say we have, you know, a skew of X number of people, or maybe that's something you guys agree to that you want a variety of different people to kind of hit in on different topics, whether, you know, it has to be with non GMO type personalities or whether it's whatnot. So you do hone in, is that how it happens? Or it's just, you literally make a deal for each person. Yeah, so the the rates uh, person by person, but as far as the the type of person, I mean, we might be doing well with fashion bloggers and heavy on female fashion bloggers one month, and then find out that you know we get some good traction with a few CrossFit posts, so we do more CrossFitters. Um, it, it, there's definitely a wide variety. Uh, you know, the portfolios are typically pretty big. I mean, you you can work with lots of different size agencies, and and again, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily. I'm not saying go go find an agency to work with. I think you need to make sure that you guys are aligned, your teams are aligned on, you know, what's a good campaign and what's not, because a lot of people focus on these, these vanity metrics like impressions, which, you know, don't necessarily do much if right, right. Yeah. Of their followers are out of, you know, out of the U S or, you know, maybe they're, you're, you're serving it to the wrong age group. If they're like a reality TV star that has all under 18 followers. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to consider uh, when, when aligning yourself with influencers, but that's where the agency, a good agency will assist you with scale. Right. You know, it's just an interesting topic, you know, because uh, one of the things, too, that's an important factor when looking at influencers is not just the number of people that follow them, but the impactful followers, you know, people who are actually DMing them and responding to them and whatnot, because that's really where your bang for your buck is. Because a lot of people, of course, want to look at the provocative whatever, and they may have lots of followers, but that might not really translate, like you were saying, to dollars to the company. And so your ROI is real low on that, you know, so. So, you know, it's an interesting Absolutely. topic yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I think the other thing is if you find a good agency, they're looking to build. I mean, they don't want to do one-offs either. Like it doesn't really help them to sell a couple posts for 3K and then you you go away. They really should want to build a long-term, you know, many posts a month for years. So if you're collaborative, I would say if you're looking with an agency, just 
make sure that attribution and tracking either through discount code or uh, you know whatever else UTM link whatever whatever way you track that uh, make sure that that's noted and discussed between you and you know the KPI or key performance indicator that you're looking for is you know on the table so everyone knows how you're measuring the campaign. Right. So do you a little bit have to manage the agency like you would maybe a stock portfolio or something and kind of see what's trending and seeing what's working for you and kind of constantly work on tweaking it and making sure that the influencers they're selecting for you are really serving your needs or maybe if you have a new product or whatnot? I mean, is it a constant management or it's something that you can just touch base on like once a year type of thing? Uh, I'd say the default is every agency you work with should be managed until yeah, they can prove that they that, that they don't need to be. And I mean, I say this because one of the mistakes I made early on was uh, thinking that hiring an agency essentially takes it off your plate. Uh, that's, you know, couldn't be further from the truth, um, whether that's digital marketing, which I would argue is the most important uh, piece of the company if you're direct consumer or, you know, content creation or whatever it is. Um, when you do like the set it and forget it approach, you're going to be uh, in for a, <laughs> in for disappointment for sure, because there, there needs to be constant oversight, um, definitely management. And again, you know, some agencies have really shined and we only touch base once a month. They handle the deliverables. We're always happy. Uh, but, you know, I'd say a large majority of them, um, you know, need checking in on quite frequently to make sure they're on task and, you know, really providing the service that we agreed on prior right. to contract. Squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think it brings up an interesting topic about anything and in, in including employees. And, and people always think micromanagement is such a bad word, but it's it's really something that's really a trust scenario. You know, I'm going to micromanage a new agency or, or new employees until they're trained and, and they gain confidence uh, in, you know, from me that they can do their job properly or they're handling the money properly or that agency is putting business out there properly. So everyone's like, don't micromanage me. But at the same time as an agency or whatever, if they feel that way, then it means they're probably not providing me back with enough information or performing in the way that I need them to or with the results. And so it really comes back on them. And and to your point, it's only a short period of time. Once they prove they can do it and there's the confidence and the trust there, then it's sort of like, okay, you guys can run with this. I, I know you know what you're doing. But at, in the meantime, it's my money and I'm spending it, whether you're an employee or, or for an agency, and I need to be a good steward of my money for, for my investors and for all the other employees so they are sure to have a job in the long run. But it, it's sort right. of this thing that it is all, all comes down to trust and until that trust is built, yeah, I'm going to keep an eye on it, probably more than you'd like me to. Well, and I think that trust yeah, topic think- is interesting too, right? I mean, that's why why you tend to get influencers because they have a population of people who kind of tr- have trust and faith in them, who are constantly looking to them. And that's exactly why you're doing it because there's a trust factor there. So you have it at the influencer level, but then it's also taking it to the level where you have it with the agency who's managing them, making sure that they're you know really representing you and your brand. Yeah, I think it's important to know that, and keep in mind that the agencies are a business also. You know, it's not like some magical place in the sky that just delivers, you know, everything to perfection. It's, it's uh, you know, they're a business. They have all the constraints and issues that your business and every other business faces. Um, that includes priorities and, you know, cash flow and, you know, being mindful of where you're at in the agency. Are you like a big fish or are you, you right. know, one of their lowest spending clients? 
uh, that'll also be pretty indicative of the level of uh, attention you get. And it's important to keep that in mind as well. I mean, we've, you know, I, PR comes to mind. Um, you know, we've worked with freelance PR where, you know, it's maybe paying their rent. And we've seen amazing uh, dedication to the projects that we're working on. And we've also seen, uh, you know, we've worked with bigger PR agencies with much bigger, uh, you know, five-figure budgets and, like monthly and you know we've seen that we're just one of you know one of many right. budgets with the weekly call and not a whole lot of follow-up so i mean it's important to mind, be mindful of that as well when you're choosing a partner agency to work with on anything and so from there i mean here's my next question really is you talk a lot about data and and collection of data and things like that and i've got to assume that i'm making an assumption and, and asking this question is that from being a professional poker player, you're constantly collecting data on every hand and, and everything that someone plays who's your opponent. I mean, is, is that sort of where you get that from? Is it just data has become such an important part of your life in, as a food entrepreneur that it's something that worked for you before as a professional poker player? Yeah, I think it's really important. The biggest thing is just to not be results-oriented. And I think a lot of people in business uh, are results oriented. You know, they have someone take a huge risk and it pays off and they're a rock star and everybody, you know, applauds them. But they don't realize, like, if that risk was, you know, in a vacuum, not worth it, like, those, you know, could have risked the entire company or, you know, a certain relationship that was crucial or anything, um, you know, it could still be a mistake, even though, even though the result was favorable. And I think that's really where the data comes in. And, you know, you get to, measure these things uh, or just look at them from a different perspective without really thinking about the result. And that's uh, pretty prevalent in business today. You know, people can do something great. They fail, you know, it's forgotten. If they do well, you know, you're remembered. So it's, it's important to kind of measure those decisions at a different level than the result. And so explain to me a little bit about, I mean, is, is there someone literally in your company that's collecting all this data from marketing to orders to things like that and the correlation between it? Because I think your product is obviously the thing you're marketing and the thing that the widget that people are buying for, for term and it's a really great product. Deborah and I've had it in the house and, and tried it, but it's, um, my question being is that you're sort of trying to collect information on what's working and what's working best and what's the best correlation between the marketing and advertising you use to sales that are given. So do you have someone basically just collecting that information on a, on a regular basis? Yeah, I'd say it's less someone doing it, all of it. And it's more that the different departments, whether it's, uh, you know, marketing, influencer partnerships, um, even product development and flavor development, everybody's mindful of the data. So there's, I mean, data, you know, there's data everywhere. It's just a matter of knowing what to look at, what to measure and how to apply that alongside the more uh, qualitative type feedback you get from customers and, um, you know, things that can't be put into numbers. Uh, understanding the balance there and making good decisions with both in mind is, is really crucial. And that happens at a departmental level. It's not, it's not centralized in our business. And so that being said, I mean, obviously you're running the business. You're the, the man in charge, the head honcho, and the one who's behind all this. So how do you then get all of that information to you? I mean, 
do you, is it something they send you on a regular basis? So, I mean, cause you're coming up with strategy and direction on a regular basis. So they're constantly running these numbers by you then I assume. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, there's conversation too, right? It's not like all spreadsheets. I think we do have a weekly meeting and, and every department kind of shares their wins and losses for the week, what they plan on doing, uh, you know, and, and data comes up that, you know, there's a lot of questions. Our team definitely makes, um, you know, everything, everything's considered and questioned and everybody's happy to kind of prove their, prove their thoughts in case with, you know, with what's in front of them and what they're seeing in their department. So you just mentioned weekly meetings. So a couple of questions here. So one is like, what's the size of your company? And then when you talk about weekly meetings, who all is included? Do you take it from a managerial level and let them filtrate it down? Like, how do you guys operate with your communications? Yeah, and this is this is a really important piece of the company that we've been working on. Uh, we've been prioritizing the last few months as we've continued to see growth. Uh, we have uh, just around 30 employees total, uh, maybe 10 decision makers, like management plus, and the 10 people we meet every Friday right now. So there's usually an hour, hour and a half meeting every Friday. You know, everybody kind of goes around the room, has a chance to share. But additionally, you know, there's there's constant communication between um, the different departments, and you know, maybe maybe the top four people in the company are you know communicating daily, along with a lot of one-on-ones uh, across management. Right. You know, because communication, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you always want to keep people in the know, but you also don't want to bog everyone down with too much. And so it's a it's a fine line. I know that in our own company, it's a constant topic. And uh, we're always trying to come up with, you know, what's the most uh, easiest path to get information out to people. But sometimes, you know, we'll have a new process in line. And in theory, it works really great, but then you're also sending emails. So we end up with two different forms of communication or, you know, it's just like this interesting thing. So I'm always yeah. curious what other companies are doing because I think we could really learn from each other. And obviously the size of your company, you know, dramatically affects, you know, what that communication, you know, what the complications may or may not be, even your physical, you know, where you're located, if you're in different states or just different rooms, whatnot. But, um, yeah, so have there have there been some things that you tried that was communication that you're like, yeah, this is not working for us? And then are there things that you're like, this is a system that's really working well and we got to, like, do more of this? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we fumbled around doing the same thing you mentioned, you know, phone calls, email, text messages, because we're all pretty close. Uh, and you lose things. You lose track of things quite often, and it's, it's not very effective. <laughs> uh, we actually moved to Slack maybe maybe a year and a half ago. And now we try to keep all anything that needs to be remembered um, or referenced later goes to Slack. And so there's still plenty of texting and emailing, um, you know, just just day to day. But Slack is where we hold most of our information. And so it's easily searchable. And, you know, different teammates can be in different, uh, you know, channels. Um, right. So, so you know, only the relevant team members need to be, you know, addressing the production issue or the marketing issue or the development issue. And that, that's been really helpful for us. Yeah, and I, um, Deborah and I both experienced Slack, yep. uh, and I think it's a great app and a way of communication. Um, we also now use internally in our company Microsoft Teams, which is basically the same thing, but not quite as unique. And and, and um, actually, I think Slack does more. But we we decided to go the Microsoft Team routes within our IT department for whatever reason. But I think any collaborative software like that is just so essential to running a team and 
and moving forward, um, whatever one you choose. But it's it's also one of those things where you get in what you, you know, you get out what you put in. If all of your team members are really willing to use it and really willing to be gung-ho and take ownership in everything they do in it, I think that's awesome. And it sounds like you have that. And I know for, for some companies, they try to implement processes like those and great collaboration tools. And it is such a struggle for employees to get onboarded onto it and change their life and just communicate you know, and I think people worry so much um, about over communicating, uh, whether it's emails or telephone calls or whatever, that they then under communicate with people or don't inform amount of people that need to be on something where a collaborative software like Slack, um, literally, it doesn't matter. Um, this is the team that's part of that channel. And no matter what goes on there, everyone has access to it. So it's not like someone accidentally leaves a name off an email or someone forgets something. It's all there. It's all searchable. It's all uh, easily accessible by the rest of the team. And I think it's just one of those things people really need to embrace it because it helps streamline things so much. And yes, is there a lot of communication goes on there? Absolutely. But I actually feel it shortens the communication because when we write emails, we tend to go on, myself included, they tend to get long because I keep going. Where with a Slack chat or a a Microsoft Teams, you're just sort of putting enough information out there because it's a chat um, where you get straight to the point that the conversation's concise, the information's being put in there, and then the next person who's on there or in the Teams or the channels um, or members of the team can literally take out of it what they need to because it's so concise and it makes our time more efficient. Okay, let me th- let me just throw a little something in here, just little devil's advocate. <laughs> From my own personal experience, this is one of the things I find frustrating about this type of communication, though. Like, on one side, it's great when it's internal and it's just our team. That's great. But the second you start having an email, let's say, with a client and you include your team on the email, what then happens is people then take that email, they maybe pull off the client so they can continue the process. Maybe we're talking about a label of this or that. And now you have some of the information in your email and you have some of the information in your other, whether it's Slack, Teams, whatever you, your company uses. And now you kind of have two places you're having to search for information. So sometimes it's a little bit, and I think that's to the point that Justin was making, is that it's as good as you use it, right? So like provided you take that information, you take it back to Teams or Slacks or whatever and store your document there or store it where everyone can access it, then it's a great tool. But the second people go off and detour from it and leave the information only on the place, some other place being email, text, whatever, then you're just now having to scrounge on yet another you know, platform to try and find your documentation. So to me, that's where, and this is where I love this conversation because I'm like, there must be a way to unify it all, you know, where you can put it in one place. And um, so, so, I mean, do you feel like you have that issue with Slack or, or is that something you guys face as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be uh, different methods of communication, you know, on any project or you know, goal. Um, but, you know, it's always going to be fragmented. I think what Slack does is it compiles most of it. You know, there's always going to be email chains that need to be referenced or text messages that are forgotten if you're on the run and for some reason don't use the app. But I, I think it helps. You know, it bulks together maybe 90% of the communication, and it's better than having, you know, multiple email chains, multiple text messages. I, I think I think it, I think it's a, a better solution. But you're right. It would be nice to see something you know, fully integrated with email <laughs> chain, right. also uh, a group chat. I mean, it seems like, you know, I'm surprised there isn't. I mean, it actually seems pretty, uh, 
it like to be a huge benefit. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in today's world, there'd be a way to just like, like you, when you just said reference something that you could literally just, like you can on the internet, you can take an address and embed it into your thing. And you that way, when someone's reading your email, they can click straight to the link of what you're talking about. But maybe that's the next multi-million million dollar idea right there. <laughs> Someone needs to invent yeah, that. Yeah, somebody tell Google. I uh, know, yeah. right? Yeah. That's your next business. <laughs> and so, Brian, I want to, I mean, I want to switch topics a little bit against some of the softer things and, and then you as an entrepreneur and conversations like that and some of the things that we've talked about. And um, so one of the questions that I have is, is that we're starting to integrate into the podcast is if you could go out and, and talk to one person or get advice from one entrepreneur in the world, who would that be? Like uh, if you could go on a, you know, a business information, I don't know, scavenger hunt, who would be the person <laughs> you'd want to go scavenger hunt their brain for information? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, there are a few, uh, I think, Gary Vaynerchuk is definitely one that is most interesting to me. And I mean, he's gotten a lot more, um, you know, he's kind of broken the mainstream recently, last couple of years. He's gotten really popular for his kind of more motivational talk. Uh, he still has a ton of great content around management and, you know, mindset for efficiencies, kind of breaking, breaking the, you know, the, the norms in business. Um, a lot of the old adages like, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right, like this type of stuff. Um, you know, he's, he's very, uh, he's very rational in, in his thinking. And I, I, I really resonate well with him. He actually used to uh, trade baseball cards for money as well, which I can, can definitely relate to. He used to <laughs> buy and sell magic cards um, <laughs> to pay for, pay for candy. So um, I think that it's, it's kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been following him actually for even before, um, before Oats Overnight, I was uh, kind of a fan of his when he had significantly less followers. But, you know, a lot more, um, I believe, uh, Crush It was was the book that I first read. And, and, you know, it's great. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of great content in there. Yeah, that's interesting. I was the one trading the candy for the baseball cards. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, that, Justin still has quite that. a prolific uh, collection of baseball cards. Yeah, and comic books. I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I definitely got into the. I, I definitely understood at an, an early age there were to only buy things that that I like, but also things that would have long term value. At least I thought thought they would. So far, it seems to be true. So, um, but on that topic, I mean, so what are the things that you feel are the the best strengths of your business right now? You know, and and we talked about you know a person's brain. You would pick. Um, also, what are some of the things that you think that you would need to pick someone's brain about that would help your business grow? Yeah, I think our strength, uh, our best strength would probably be that we're scrappy. I, you know, we, we solve problems with what we have. And, you know, if like I mentioned our business is bootstrapped, uh, we, we haven't raised outside money. Um, you know, we, we don't have the option to solve problems with money. And I think especially with BC funded companies, you see today and I have, you know, friends that friends that, you know, have run them and, you know, you hear them problem solve. It's just a different mindset. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's just different. I mean, you, you, we, the whole team thinks outside the box and, you know, have, having that mindset, um, and not having the resources to solve things, you know, just by, you know, paying $30,000 for someone to do it, uh, is, is really invaluable. And it, 
even when we do eventually raise money and, you know, get to that point, uh, you know, having come from that scrappy background, I think will be, it will make all the difference. So, I mean, you just mentioned how you guys can't really solve problems with money. And I think there's something really, I mean, while it's difficult to do that sometimes, there's also a hugely beneficial part of it. It makes you grow organically. It makes you really rely on your resources that you actually have, uh, which are then sustainable. But, you know, as you look at that, I mean... I think what Deborah's trying to say basically is it becomes one of your biggest assets, really, is that being forced to go through something hard and go through it with all of your teams. One, it brings a bond to your team because you're all having to go through this hardship together. Two, you can't just solve the problem with money. And three, the lessons that you and your team learn from going through that hardship is enormous. Um, and, Absolutely. And it's just one of those things. So... I guess here's my question, unless you have something you wanted to add. Well, what I, where I was kind of going with that a little bit, too, is, is then you have employees in that scenario. And so, I mean, how do you find, like, when you're looking for your employees, it's someone who really buys into what you're doing. They ha- you know, because they have to be behind that to really invest themselves and their brain power and all that. Because there's lots of jobs out there where you can just go do it, punch time clock, get paid, and even get paid relatively well, you know. So when you're interviewing or when you're looking for someone, how do you go about, you know, finding the right person, knowing that they're going to fit with you guys? What are some of the things that go through your mind when you're, you know, trying to fill a position? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is this is a key part of the business as well. Somebody touched on it, but you definitely don't want what you described. Um, you don't want somebody who comes in, punches a clock, leaves, and doesn't take accountability for those decisions. Uh, you know, off the clock. Everybody that we hire and we bring into Oaks overnight, and you know, again, we're still we're still a young company. Um, I'm sure this this changes when you know we go from 30 to 300 employees. It'll be a lot different. Well, hopefully not. But you know, we look for people that really take ownership over over their job role and, and their duties and are, you know, you can't say everyone's going to be passionate about it, but cares about it. Um, you know, understand what it takes. And sometimes that's a call at night, you know, to solve something that came up or that broke, um, you know, not always, but, you know, having the flexibility and um, them having the flexibility to handle these things and to, you know, think about it on the weekends and come in on Monday and say, Hey, you know, Saturday I was at this uh, restaurant saw this, like, thought about overnight, we should look at this. Um, that, that makes all the difference, um, really being accountable and taking that ownership over their department. And I love this topic, actually, because I think it is so hard for people to take ownership. Like, I mean, when you're trying to hire employees, I would, I would wage to bet that 60% of the people that come to you, if they've ever had experience, it's not that they're not willing, it's that they've never been trained in a job to take ownership or to take responsibility for, for those type of things or even be someone to have enough confidence in them to problem solve. And again, I'll go back to the micromanagement thing where, yes, at the beginning you're trying to train someone in your company and trying to make sure they do the right thing and handle the right thing and, and get the culture of your company. But at the end, you want them to be able to independently solve problems and be problem solvers as a person. We always say this thing in our company is we don't want someone that's a snake finder. We want someone that's a snake killer. You know, so if we have a problem that ventures into our 
quote unquote garden or our business, we want someone who's able to think outside the box and really go after solving that problem and ultimately deliver great service and products to our customers because they they're able to solve problems quickly and efficiently and you know with the mindset of you know time is money so yeah i mean definitely i feel like in our company if you go to the head honcho and you say hey i have this problem the first thing out of his mouth is so what are you going to do about it so you don't even go to him with it until you have that idea of what it is you're going to do about it because then you're like uh well i found this problem and this is you know an idea i was thinking we could run with and chances are he's going to be like you think it's going to work and if you say yes he's like go do it and you're like okay you know so it's kind of cool to be empowered to do that and also i don't know i think it as an employee it gives you the sense of can do and responsibility for the things you're proposing and really taking ownership in it which makes you feel that much more vested so i you know i think in encouraging that and be in your employees is a great trait but it's also hard to find people who will take that initiative a lot of people are kind of fearful to do it yeah and you have to have the right type of person you know that that responds well to that i think i think what we found is that you know there's a big range of uh personality types and you know not everybody's cut out for for a startup i mean we look we look for people that you know can eventually have a team under them like we like to hire you know promote from within and you know, if we're hiring someone for a customer service position, we love to think that that person and their personality could one day lead a customer service team. And that's how we're looking at it. I think it's really important to look at it that way uh, when you're early because, you know, you're always, you're always going to be better off hiring people or promoting people, um, you know, from within that are familiar with the brand and there's less, less onboarding time. Um, you know, we, we really look for that. And, and of course, there's, there are people that, you know, have a job to do. They come and they do it. And there's, there's a need for those people as well. But... It, you want to make sure your early early hires lean toward management potential. Agreed. And I think you made a great point there, too. Not everyone is cut out for a startup. I mean, it definitely is a certain personality. They're almost entrepreneurial. And I think your concept of one hiring people who do have that interest in a startup and who have the ability and desire to have people under them. Because then you can hire from within. Because in a startup company, someone who's been there from day one, it's it doesn't sit real well if you all of a sudden bring someone in to be, you know, manage over them when they're the person who's gonna have to train them kind of, right? You know, so I think you're you've, you're right. spot on. It's really smart what you just said right there. Yeah, and I think we've seen that people have uh people kind of have ceilings and sometimes it's from experience. Sometimes it's, you know, interest, but people kind of raise to a certain level and they, um, you know, often, often stop improving. And that's really a, a, you know, job of both the CEO and everyone that had the department is to look to increase that ceiling, but also find people, you know, that really have high ceilings and high potential and try to stay away from those who aren't really looking to grow. When I think it's one of those those things as well, it's like um, you know there's a there's a book out there. It's called the Economy of Leadership, and it's sort of the balance in a person being able to be risk taking, but being able to weigh risk. And it's uh, being a manager, which is almost the opposite of a leader. A leader needs to go drive a vision home and, and keep leading forward, but a manager needs to manage the people and get them to achieve those goals. And so it's it's one of those things where um, it's there's you're looking for almost a balanced person and that they they balance things, but then also have the ambition and the desire to grow, 
you know, particularly grow forward and continue to move themselves forward and have ambition to have better things in their lives, uh, want, want more money in their lives because that's ultimately what getting promoted means. And um, it's this weird balance. So, I mean, amongst all of that, I mean, how do you then as the head of your company lead those people and set a, a model for them to do that? to encourage that culture well, in your company. Yeah. I mean, everyone's different. Like, uh, like to your point, people are motivated by different things. I mean, some people do just want the money. Some people want to be appreciated. Some people want to be part of the team. Um, you know, some people value some of those things and not the others. And it's really important as a leader to understand those things and really, you know, really kind of cater to them and place them in positions, you know, set them up for success and put them in positions where they can reach those goals and they feel good about it and they're encouraged to work more. Uh, and work harder uh, for those goals. So um, I think we, we really kind of iron those out, and that's done through a lot of communication directly between myself, you know, in one-on-ones, you know, both at work and outside of work, uh, just to make sure that, you know, everybody's on the same page. And, uh, you know, those things evolve over time as well. Some people get married, have kids, they change. Um, you know, we've had, we've had employees go through different events uh, through the three years, and, you know, you always have to keep, keep your ear to the ground there. You know, you just mentioned um, you talk to him sometimes inside work and sometimes outside of work, and it made me curious. Do you guys uh, do team bonding type stuff, or do you do? I mean, I have a daughter who's in New York who's interning right now, and it's really interesting. They take these kids out and do all sorts of stuff with them. Um, but I think it's cool because it gets them to know each other, and you know, especially in that predicament because they're just there for a couple months. But on a broader scale, you know, do you do that? I mean, I feel like a group of thirty—that's you know, a reasonable size of people that you could try to coordinate events or fun stuff to really get people to know each other yeah we haven't done anything formal yet like with the whole team i think i think we definitely look to um things have been a little crazy the last year or so, so i think <laughs> scheduling the time would be difficult uh, but yeah i mean you know our our production manager for example has taken out you know our production employees to dinner um you know our fulfillment team is close uh, a lot of them you know our friends outside of work now um you know the, the management of these teams all know each other, most of them actually at this point, uh, personally, uh, in addition to professionally. And so, you know, we'll grab drinks or something and catch up. And, you know, work's always, you know, not, not always the main focus of the conversation, of course, but, right. you know, it comes up. And, you know, it, it's really nice to be able to connect with somebody in a personal setting, you know, not, not sitting across the desk in an office, but, you know, over dinner and just kind of chatting about, you know, what's up with their life, like what's, uh, you know, what's going on with them, not necessarily with the business. Um, up front. And, you know, that certainly plays into how effective uh, the communication is at work as well. Right. I mean, and you also mentioned it's really kind of getting to know your employees and what what's important to them. We talked with another gentleman one time and he was talking about when he interviews people, he kind of said, you know, I know you might not work here for the rest of your life, right? Like chances are that won't be the case, but like, what do you want to learn while you're here? Like, what are the things you want? And I thought it was such a great approach because it wasn't just like, hey, we're filling this position and do you fit our position? But also like, hey, what is it you're hoping to get out here? And I thought that two-way street was just so, you know, today's concept of employees, employer relationships and uh, really letting people kind of become the most they want to become and not just what can you get out of them. But it sounds like you kind of have that as well when you're talking about learning who they are and whatnot and what they want. Yeah, and I think and I, I've told every single one of my employees this, you know, they can do really anything in the company. If somebody comes, you know, someone's handled, handling uh, maybe the Amazon scheduling for orders and they say, hey, you know, I have this great idea 
I have a friend that owns a bunch of yoga studios or, you know, CrossFit gyms. Like, I want to coordinate events with this, these companies. I think it'll be a benefit to the business in this way. You know, we'll review everything. And if it makes sense, you know, you get a new position. We've, we've made that very clear that, you know, all the ideas will be received and, and think outside the box. Like, if you think you can add value and you want to do something or, you know, add value in this area, like, let's talk about it. So th- I think that, especially early on in a startup, um, it's important not to, not to pin people to certain positions and just expect them, um, you know, of course, if, if, if it's willing, of course, you expect them to do the job, but um, giving that flexibility early on as you're filling so many different positions and still understanding what the business needs, it's right. great to have that flexibility with, with your employees. Right. You know, and I think that's such an interesting concept as well, because, you know, well, maybe you're in the accounting department, accounts receivable, or wherever you are, it doesn't mean you don't have a creative side to you, too, or you don't have a, you know, different concept in your head where, you know, it's kind of fun to get to cross you know, different into different divisions and get to do different things. I mean, that's one of the things I love about the work that I do is I'm kind of all over the board in terms of what I do. And I really enjoy the different facets of my job and getting to use different parts of my brains and work with different people. And so I think that's really cool that you've enabled your employees and encouraged it even, not just enabled it, but, you know, really encourage them to think outside of the box. And, you know, if they come up with stuff that you're all ears. And so I think that's a right. makes for a really great community for people to get to work in yeah and that also indicates how much they care i mean if someone if someone is in like you mentioned you know accounts receivable and they are thinking of this great content for ads and they uh, or maybe you know event coordination or something like that you know it, it's a good good indicator that they care about the business and it's always it's never it's never lost let somebody follow the passion especially as it relates uh to success for the company so we we definitely look for that and encourage it yeah, and I think that's uh, very interesting, actually, because for a person, I mean, in a lot of companies, people are very protective of their particular area and particular department. So encouraging people to sort of break down the walls of information and letting information travel freely and, and most importantly, safely so people can be vulnerable with their ideas and pass them amongst the departments and give a suggestion to the CEO or their boss, particularly in startups, we have the chance to create that culture right off the back. But if you're an existing business and trying to create that culture, you've got to get people to understand that, yes, it's okay for accounting to to think outside the box and have a marketing idea. They see numbers differently and, and they're dealing with a different area. So how can you get as much information as possible to make the best idea as a leader? And we talk about this all the time in our companies. It's so important that no matter what people, and it's where I said the over-communication thing, but it's really putting as much information in front of the people that are making the decisions as possible, regardless of your department. So it's not only putting that information out there from what you're specializing in, but any of your other thoughts. So to create as much thinking and as I say, chase as many rabbit holes down, uh, chase as many rabbits down as many rabbit holes as you can, because when you're making a decision, you want as much information as possible. That doesn't mean, I don't want people to get confused that you, at some point you have to make the decision and you've got enough information for, for that point in time and you can pivot later. But it is so important that you give people that space to be heard. And I think they feel important. I think they do feel ownership in the business when they do that. 
and they have good ideas sometimes, right? Things that, because their perspective is different, they might see an angle that you can't see or a person in the advertising department can't see because they don't sit in the other person's shoes. So that perspective, you know, it's kind of getting a 360 on it, and that's great. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, it, it's a, to, your, to your point, it's not, uh, it can be overdone, I'm sure, in scenarios, uh, finding that healthy balance where, you know, people feel valued and can contribute when, when they truly will add value and knowing, you know, I, I'm not going to give uh, our CFO, um, you know, accounting advice, <laughs> technical <laughs> accounting advice, of course. Um, but, you know, it, understanding kind of where they can fit in. And, and uh, that also comes with a lot of. So, Brian, as we we wrap up the podcast and uh, this episode, I know we've talked a little bit offline about doing another episode. So. Looking forward to a part three, but before we get off this one, um, I mean, is there anything that, based on the conversation we've had on this podcast, is something you want to share that you feel might be helpful for people, or as an entrepreneur, something that you'd want to pass on that you think people would benefit from? Yeah, I think um, we talked a lot about managing people, and that's something that, uh, quite honestly, I had no experience in with poker. It's very solitary. And I've been learning a lot in the last three years, uh, three years plus. Um, I think it's important with these types of relationships, it's delicate. There's a lot of mistakes that can happen. And, you know, when you deal with uh, interpersonal uh, misunderstandings, it's, it can cause, you know, it can be very stressful and it can put a lot of strain. I think going into these, um, I guess, if you decide to adopt this for your business or kind of have this mindset, understanding that there's going to be mistakes made <clears throat> and, being, you know, understanding it and being okay with it and just making sure that, uh, you know, you're not, you're not hindered if, if you have a disagreement or two employees have a disagreement over something um, and just making sure that you kind of stay focused and stay, uh, not, not get held back by that because it will happen. Um, this is all dicey stuff dealing with, um, you know, dealing with different emotions and different personalities um, in a startup. Right. You know, that's a, I think that's a really valid point because, you know, a lot of times, you know, the the saying that comes to mind is message sent is not necessarily the message received. Because a lot of times when you're saying something, it's from your perspective, but when you say it to someone, they're interpreting it from their perspective. And so a lot of times things can very easily get misunderstood or feelings can be hurt. And so it's really tricky to kind of navigate those waters, especially when you're newer in that. And a lot of times entrepreneurs are, right? It's a new startup and maybe that's not where they started from. They came from a different industry as did you. And so um, I think that's a really valid point that you just made. Yeah, I agree yeah. with Deborah. And um, I just want to say thank you again, Brian, for coming back on the show and I mean, really getting deep into it and being vulnerable and authentic with your answers with the audience. I think there's just this episode really had a lot of great content in it and and stuff that we really I look forward to diving in deeper with and and really exploring with you. And I think you're learning a lot and and you're you're really you're inexperienced and you talked about in interpersonal skills and management almost helped you think outside the box when you started a business because you came from somewhere else, you didn't come at things like a normal person with a business background or a person that had been in the workforce before behind a desk or in a cubicle would come at it. And and I think it's refreshing to hear. And there's just so much there that you've created in your culture as a business because of it. So I think it's pretty cool and really congratulations. I mean, I'm, I'm really impressed by what you guys are doing there. 
Yeah. yeah, thank you. Definitely appreciate you having me back on. It's definitely been fun, and I loved hearing your story, and I can't wait to hear more on our next chat. I know we're actually going to have to come visit you in Phoenix, Arizona, I think, and, <laughs> and see what you guys are doing there. I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah. You're more than welcome anytime. Uh, you probably don't want to come now. It's around 115. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Summers aren't friendly. Toasty. Here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. maybe in the fall. Yeah. We'll just, uh, you can toast your oats outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty rough. <laughs> um, and everyone in the audience, thank you guys for listening in. Thank you for all the support, all the listeners, and all the countries that you guys are in. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I know the food entrepreneurs that are on the show and beverage entrepreneurs appreciate it as well. Uh, if you guys are interested in being on the show, you can reach out to me, Justin, at thefoodentrepreneurs.com. And if you want to follow us on social media, we're at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs on both Facebook and Instagram. Thank you, everyone, for listening in, and have a great day. Bye.